0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, inviting you to listen to a new series focused on societal changes wrought by COVID-19. It's produced by our good friends at the Mass Inc. Polling Group. Enjoy the show.
1: Today's episode of Mass Reboot is sponsored by the Massachusetts Business Roundtable, an employer-driven member organization comprised of CEOs and senior executives from large employers. Through the roundtable, business leaders engage with the public and private sectors to advance policies that support the state's competitiveness and long-term economic prosperity.
2: Nothing shapes a person's universe quite like transportation. Where you can get by car, by bus, by train, those options set the physical boundaries of our day-to-day lives. Transportation opens the door to new places, or shuts them. It's how we get around and how the things we need get to us, or don't. Perhaps no question looms larger over Massachusetts right now than this one. As we emerge from the pandemic, who is going to want to get where and how? Yeah, so I've been going back to the office since last summer, but I would always drive. Um, But as the traffic is getting worse and... uh, I don't really have a free parking spot anymore. It's gotten a little tough to take a car, so back to the tea. I don't think anyone wants to take the tea. This is Emily. She's one of many, many people in Massachusetts who worked remotely for part of the pandemic. She's back on the tea, mostly by necessity. The roads have just gotten too crowded, and that's a really troubling sign for many residents. Before the pandemic, Boston had life altering traffic congestion. In 2019, Boston commuters spent an average of 149 hours stuck in traffic, the worst in the country. Now, traffic is reaching pre-pandemic levels while train and bus ridership numbers are nowhere near where they used to be. So how can Eastern Massachusetts avoid a traffic catastrophe? What's already being done? And if a part of the workforce stays remote, how do policymakers think about the future of the transportation system when the state's needs have shifted? These are the questions we'll explore today. I'm Libby Gormley, and this is Mass Reboot, a podcast about restarting Massachusetts after COVID and what we lost along the way. Welcome to episode three, transportation. I'm here again with my co-hosts, both people with lots of up-close and personal experience with public transit.
1: Jennifer Smith, denizen of the Red Line, hello.
0: And Steve Cazellas, scourge of the Orange Line and the Haverhill Lines, and very relieved today that our recording doesn't depend on us getting downtown in a timely fashion.
2: Now, before we get into how the pandemic impacted transportation and what the reboot will be, I want to talk about what transportation looked like leading up to the pandemic. Everybody knows how bad traffic has been. It shows up in official rankings and stats, and you can just look out your car window and see it. And Steve, we've been doing polls and surveys on this for years.
0: That's right, and going back pretty much to our founding, this is the issue that we've done the most polling on. So transportation issues of all kinds, we have lots of data on how people were feeling. And long before the pandemic, people were already down on how the transit and road systems in Massachusetts were functioning. Commutes were really long, and those commutes were diminishing people's quality of life, you know, whether it was by car or by T. The longest commuters, people who were traveling 45 minutes or more, for a lot of them, 71% said that they'd been late for work recently, half said that they'd thought about leaving jobs to improve their commutes, and 30% said that they thought about leaving the area altogether. So transportation realities really do have a very measurable impact
1: on the quality of everyday life. And let me tell you, as a person who's on the train a lot, things weren't great on the T either. As a regular on the Red Line, I remember derailments like the one in 2019 near the JFK UMass stop that snarled us all up in shuttles for what felt like an interminable amount of time. Those kinds of derailments became all too familiar. That year, 2019, the MBTA had the second most derailed transit system in the country.
2: Lots to get into for sure. Shall we?
0: So I think now I say all aboard.
2: Let's go. On the day we started recording Mass Reboot, the Orange Line wasn't running. It was a hot day, and we stood on the platform at State for a while before we realized no trains were coming. Yeah, it feels like
0: 93 degrees. 80, it's 88 degrees right now.
2: This podcast is about restarting Massachusetts after COVID, so the fact that the trains weren't running felt perhaps like a premonition.
0: We're walking because the T's not running, which is
2: fitting somehow. We've long heard about people's frustration with the transportation system throughout the state. In western Massachusetts, this often boils down to conditions of the roadways and transit systems whose buses don't run on evenings and weekends. In eastern Massachusetts, it's soul-crushing traffic and an old rickety system of trains and buses that we can't really stand but also can't live without.
0: People in Massachusetts get how bad the system is. In 2019, 71% agreed that action is urgently needed to improve the state's transportation system. That's a sentiment reflected in many other polls we've done in recent years. There's a lot to look at when it comes to reasons for this frustration. The high-profile incidents are a part of it. But it's also the daily challenges of compounding delays, crowded trains, massive traffic backups, and a road system in deteriorating repair. According to one state lawmaker, we're not keeping up.
3: We're spending money to be sure to take care of bridges, but not at a pace that maintains them. We're spending money at a pace that actually causes the roads and bridges to degrade the so-called state of good repair. That's the hardest sell is that as much money as we're spending, it's not enough to keep Massachusetts uh, competitive, but perhaps more importantly, safe in terms of the transportation system that we provide.
1: That's State Representative William Strauss. He's co-chair of the legislature's Joint Committee on Transportation, and he represents the 10th Bristol District. That covers Fairhaven, Marion, Mattapoisett, Rochester, and parts of New Bedford. The committee is responsible for setting transportation policy and overseeing many parts of the system. He and I talked about where things have been and where they're headed, we all saw those traffic maps over the last year, showing Boston's roads in unfamiliar shade of all green. Well, those days are gone.
3: People have seen, and it's been well reported, that traffic on the roads is very much at pre-pandemic levels. I see that uh, as I've been driving uh, back into into Boston to the state house now. And uh, part of that is, Because the return of people's comfort levels uh, to public transit is still not there. So I think what you're seeing is a lot of the people on the roads are people who pre-pandemic might have used public transit, might have carpooled, but they're
2: not. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation backs up what Strauss sees on his commute. Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver said at a board meeting in late June that traffic on most roadways is back to about 2019 levels, and travel times are returning to their previous lengths.
0: Throughout the pandemic, we at the Massing polling group found people were more comfortable using individual modes of transportation, like walking, biking and driving. For now, COVID restrictions are still a part of the daily commute for transit riders. During this last week's sweltering heat wave, I talked with riders at the Malden MBTA station where convenience wasn't the only thing on their minds.
2: As you can see, like the buses are crowded and because no one's mandatory vaccination, you don't know who you're getting on the bus with anymore. I mean, I know the T requires you, but the bus drivers are not police. They're not supposed to like, you know, you're sitting in the back of the bus, someone takes off their mask. No one's going to say anything. You just suck it up and go about your business.
0: On the MBTA, ridership over the last few weeks is still just over a third of what it was early in 2020, while driving is back. So how bad could congestion get? I talked to Monica Tibbetts-Nutt about this. She's the executive director of the 128 Business Council, a transportation management association, and a regional transit provider.
4: It's going to take an already horrific congestion situation we were dealing with pre-pandemic and turn it into, I mean, really for the most part, a parking lot across all of our highway systems.
2: The math is pretty simple. More people can get around using less space on trains and buses than when they drive in a car by themselves. More drivers and less transit users is a huge problem for the region. Even drivers themselves understand that. Our surveys show they see improving public transit as a major step toward addressing congestion.
0: A big part of what Monica and the 128 Business Council do is help people get to and from their member businesses on the 128 Belt. She was also the Vice Chair of the Fiscal and Management Control Board at the MBTA. She talked a lot about the shape of the interconnected challenges we face, with overburdened roads and a housing market forcing people to live further away from work. There's also the changing work formats themselves. And this traffic is before many workers come back to the office.
4: We don't have any more updated highway counts, but we run traffic cams for North and South 128 from some of our member buildings. And the traffic is absolutely back and it's going to continue to climb, especially when you think about the majority of the companies that we've been talking to in the 128, Cambridge, Somerville, they're not planning on bringing back any majority of their workforce until September. So this is what we're seeing with the soft return. And that is obviously incredibly
2: concerning. Traffic getting worse than it was before the pandemic is a scary thought. But at the moment, it feels likely. After the break, we hear from the experts on what would need to happen to avoid that outcome. Stay with us.
0: Today's episode of Mass Reboot is sponsored by our good friends at Rasky Partners. They're a longtime supporter of ours and a nationally recognized government affairs and communications firm. For over 30 years, the team at Rasky has worked with all types of organizations, large and small, helping each one reach their business objectives through advocacy and storytelling. Find out more at rasky.com. That's r a s k y.com.
2: Where we live, where and how we work, and how we get around are inseparable. In our surveys, around 60% of the Massachusetts workforce say they want to work from home at least a few days a week. This poses real challenges for policymakers and advocates. How do we prepare for post-pandemic transportation needs when we don't know what those could be? Monica hears from her member companies regularly, and they're uncertain about the future. But she says, we're not going back to the way things were.
4: No one's coming back to a five-day work week.
2: It's never going to happen again. Planning for transportation infrastructure is hard even in stable times. Timelines are long to design and build huge and expensive pieces of infrastructure. You're planning for what people might need in a world that doesn't exist yet.
1: I asked Rep Strauss how he's navigating transit policy when things are still so hazy.
3: I don't know. I don't have any better crystal ball than anyone else in terms of the uh, workforce changes and how many days a week or which segments of the of the workforce uh, that becomes a, a more permanent option to work at home instead of go to a central office location where wherever it is. But with regard to the fixed infrastructure, the roads, the bridges, train lines. Buses, let me save for a second. Uh, You still need the full system available.
1: Strauss emphasized that point in our conversation. To him, any sort of argument against funding public transportation because of low ridership is a flawed one.
3: I hope it does not become a rationalization for some that if there is a greater increase in work at home, opportunities during some part of the schedule, uh, work schedule, that that doesn't become a rationalization for uh, reducing what we need to provide in terms of public transit and uh, road and bridge options.
1: Part of the reason Rep Strauss doesn't like that rationalization is because it reduces the question of supporting public transit to just how many people need it purely for jobs access. But a thriving transportation network is a boon to the economy and also personal mobility.
3: It's uh, access not just for work, but for for any of the reasons people want to get around. Uh, And so uh, that's, uh, that's how I would analyze those, not, as I say, strictly through the lens of ridership, where if it drops to a certain amount, you say, well, too bad, we cut them off. Uh, And I don't think that's uh, uh, going to happen.
1: But it's important not to lose sight of why folks fight for a baseline level of service. At the end of the day, no matter how many people can work from home or drive to work or wherever else they need to be, there will always be people who can't. That was abundantly clear during COVID.
3: The workplace changed, of course, for many people, but for others, uh, it did not change. There were emergency response employees, uh, important uh, parts of the workforce that still needed to get to work. And for some, they, don't, they didn't have an automobile as an option, which some did who still had to work. Uh, and uh, so they still had to rely on the public transit system.
1: But we know that state transit officials are watching ridership as a way to determine how much service to provide. The MBTA proposed service cuts this past year for funding reasons. They reversed that plan when federal money became available, and after our congressional delegation vehemently objected. But those cuts were aimed directly at routes and services where ridership dropped during the pandemic, to preserve what the MBTA described as essential routes with higher ridership.
2: According to an MBTA advisory board report, The MBTA will face an operating budget deficit by fiscal year 2025, unless ridership returns to pre-COVID levels. It's sometimes hard to know what to make of MBTA deficit projections. They don't often include funds the state provides them in their calculations. But ridership is way down. The only line that's come back to even half its pre-pandemic ridership is the blue line. And to get riders back, you have to make public transit more appealing than driving. Monica and the 128 Business Council are trying to do just that. They use funds from private companies to plan and execute shuttle services throughout the Route 128 West Corridor and beyond. Those services bring folks from residential communities and transit hubs to major employers. The big thing is you
4: have to make public transit better and more convenient than using a car. And so that's what we're working on doing. Down to even looking, you know, a lot of the interiors of our vehicles will have trays, will have tables and things. We have Wi-Fi. And like I said, it's open to the public, but completely privately funded. So it gives us the ability to add services and add amenities much quicker.
2: There are lots of other transportation ideas circling in Massachusetts. These include changing road use to give more space to buses and bikes. How to use the commuter rail is also a major question, with some proposing a regional rail concept. Some ideas for that include electrification, changing how stations are configured to make boarding easier, changing fares, and expanding train service to new places. Our most recent polling in 2019 showed 76% of Massachusetts residents support regional rail. Rep Strauss spoke specifically about South Coast Rail, which would connect
1: Boston to cities like New Bedford and Fall River. For around 25 years, the idea of creating a rail line like this has been a dream. As traffic congestion piles up, he says, it's become a necessity.
3: What used to be a hour or less ride into Boston from the New Bedford area and the Fall River area has today become, and when I say today, I'm, I'm referring to pre-pandemic levels and almost essentially where we are now, over a two-hour ride. So uh, for people to spend four to five hours on the road uh, and adding to congestion was unacceptable.
2: Monica says optimizing our use of the commuter rail would have to entail not just farther reach, but better service in all aspects.
4: You have the rail, you have the trains. How can you best use them? And I think that's going back to you know looking at that regional rail, looking at having greater frequency, having more options for where those trains are stopping, and especially, and most importantly, getting the fares in line with the other modes.
2: Fares for the commuter rail in Massachusetts are notoriously high, as Monica knows well. I live
4: probably a 15-minute walking distance from a commuter rail, except the frequency doesn't move fast enough for me to use it most of the time, and the cost of it is significant. It's much cheaper to own and operate a car than it is to use it, and that's a shame for the amount of money we're spending on
2: that. Fares also become an equity issue, with the lowest-income residents often paying the highest fares. That's because fares on the commuter rail are determined by distance. The lines travel to and from the state's gateway cities. So, in Worcester, for instance, a monthly commuter rail pass is $388, while the median household income is roughly $48,000. Ride a bit further in on the line, to Wellesley, where incomes are much higher, and the pass drops to $261 a month. The median household income there is $189,000. The story repeats itself across the commuter rail, leading some to call for low-income fares.
0: The idea of low-income fares for all MBTA services, not just commuter rail, is a popular one. One recent poll in the Boston region found 84% support for the idea. Fares are always contentious, and the public generally opposes raising them. Part of that's because it can be hard for the public to support higher fares when they aren't seeing the system improve. A new fleet of red and orange line cars is still sitting off track. After several issues with the new orange line cars, including another derailment, the MBTA polled the entire fleet this March to find out what was causing
2: problems. Removing fares altogether has been discussed by some in Boston and beyond. Notably, city councilor and Boston mayoral candidate Michelle Wu has been calling for an entirely free tea for some time now. Acting Mayor Kim Janey implemented a 1,000-person pilot program where the city of Boston subsidized T-passes. We've also seen some municipalities make some or all of bus service fare-free. In Lawrence, that's been two years of free rides on their three busiest bus routes. In Worcester, the Regional Transit Authority implemented a pandemic policy of not collecting bus fares. Brockton will be using a portion of its funds from the American Rescue Plan Act to offer free weekend bus access all summer.
1: Rep Strauss doesn't want to wade into the free tea hubbub, but he does think that individual regional transit authorities, or RTAs, should be driving the bus, so to speak, where the MBTA doesn't offer extensive or any service, and thus where transit gaps lie. Uh,
3: Those regional transit authorities, which exist uh, throughout the state and uh, look to their governance by municipal officials, are a great opportunity and place to fill in what those transportation gaps are. What a small van or larger bus service or on-demand service uh, should look like, uh, I think, uh, can best be determined in those regions. Monica
0: tibbetts Nut sees great potential in buses, not just to get people out of their cars, but to make our transit system more equitable. But seeing that potential through would require changes to our streets, our stations, and our traffic signals.
4: You know, starting with something like bus, making bus priority within the roadways, giving them the priority because thinking about even just the amount of people that they're moving, they should have their own dedicated lanes. They should have accessible bus stops, accessible stations. We should treat them just the way we do subway. That would be a huge, huge step, and it would serve the majority of our ridership.
1: The MBTA is, right now, undergoing a system-wide reevaluation of its bus lines. Rep Strauss says some of the bus service operations don't make sense today, and the reworking is overdue.
3: Some of the historic bus lines in the T service area look to uh, an economy, a work uh, location and housing patterns that have not existed for decades, but have... Uh, vocal constituencies that support their lines. And that's, that's fine.
1: Rep Strauss says the MBTA is analyzing the data in order to determine which bus lines are doing better than others. But they're also trying to figure out where there are underserved areas where people are either traveling a long distance to get to a bus stop, or the bus line doesn't get them right where they need to go. Bus lanes notwithstanding, we saw some innovative approaches to street usage during the pandemic. Lanes or entire streets were blocked off to cars and open for pedestrians, cyclists, outdoor dining, and shopping. Rep Strauss emphasized that, as we come out of the pandemic, we will have to keep thinking about street usage differently. That means parking areas nearer to public transportation hubs and off the street. That street space, which is now being kept for parking and commercial use, could become travel lanes for cars, pedestrians, bikes, and scooters.
3: They're all in competition for roadways in areas on some streets and some corridors where uh, parking is associated. And that's a tough sell to convince, whether it's merchants or people who live nearby, that uh, traffic will flow better uh, with off-street parking dedicated to uh, transportation uses.
2: All of these potential changes to buses, the commuter rail, to streets, come at a cost. The MBTA tends to operate with a focus on cost savings, as evidenced by their initial plan to make service cuts. Monica says, bottom line, spending is essential to good service, not something to be avoided at the cost of service.
4: And I do. I think as long as the financials tend to lead a lot of the leadership decisions at the T, it is going to be very difficult to improve service. You cannot improve service and save money at the same
2: time. It's not possible. The T's revenue comes from three main sources, state taxes, municipal assessments, and fares. If low ridership and scant fare revenues remain for the foreseeable future, how do we even maintain the T's current service, much less make sweeping changes? Rep Strauss points to a number of efforts
1: on Beacon Hill. In particular, he highlighted a proposal in the last transportation bond bill. The section explicitly connected revenue raised at the gas pump to drive efforts to address larger climate impacts. It would have directed money collected from a possible future gas tax increase to be put into a transportation trust fund. That provision hit a wall with Governor Charlie Baker, who pocket vetoed the section, though the broader $16 billion bond bill became law.
3: For reasons that, uh, again, I just don't understand, the governor vetoed that. Uh, and said, no, I'll use this money how I want, or any governor could. Uh, So we'll see if that issue comes back. But it seems to me that these transportation issues are today and should be tied into uh, environmental issues uh, like that, like the climate initiative, and also housing.
0: Another possibility could be incentivizing local investments in commuter rail stations as housing hubs
4: for a lot of people the places that they are living are not in any way reasonable for a commute to those companies and that's really continued to be the biggest issue you know a lot of people are having to move more west a lot of people are having to move more south and more north to try and find places that they can live in places that you know they can raise a family or they can retire and move into a smaller home all of these things and very few of them are near where the concentration of employment is
2: And that means one thing, more driving. But what about the physical roadways and other transit improvements that are partially supported by the gas tax? If electric vehicle proponents win out, there will be diminishing revenues at the pump, even if the same number of people are driving.
3: On some schedule that people have different views on, of course, we will be consuming less gasoline as more electric vehicles enter the fleet. It's not the uh, significant percentage yet, uh, but someday it will. And we do have a planning uh, and discussion opportunity. I feel over the next 10 to 20 years before it fully hits where we are going to need an alternative for a revenue stream from the gas tax, uh, which will supplement how roads and bridges are taken care of.
1: That might mean considering more roadway tolls in the future to compensate, for instance. The debate about funding the transportation network has been going on for as long as anyone can remember. It's full of bad information, misunderstandings, and old ideas, which make progress hard. Perhaps the biggest one is that roads pay for themselves through specific taxes and user fees, and transit does not.
3: People are under the impression that the gas tax that they pay pays for them to drive on the road. It actually doesn't come anywhere near paying the cost of uh, maintaining the
0: road. But as for those trains and buses, the goal isn't just paying to get them working. It's also making sure people are riding them. Monica says a key part of growing ridership is collaborating with the private sector.
4: How can we work with human resources to start better hoteling different desk options or timing that this particular department at this particular location will commute on these days? That's the kind of stuff it's going to take to really bring back ridership. And for us as a private entity, it is much quicker for us to
2: respond to that. The gap to make up ridership is a big one, and it's possible it won't be bridged anytime soon. Rep Strauss says the response shouldn't be just to cut service anywhere ridership is down.
3: As a a general point for for the moment, uh, that uh, becomes part of the debate, which is, is your metric of uh, measuring certain kinds of transportation access solely based on ridership or, again, this effort It's something akin to the effort that the T engaged in during the pandemic to say certain transit access points need to be maintained separate from just a ridership calculation. And that is, what alternatives does that particular population, whether it's Fairmont, but the same analysis applies everywhere else, uh, does that population that's being served have an alternative?
1: The Fairmount Line, which Rep Strauss just mentioned, is an interesting line. It's a commuter rail route that operates almost entirely within the city of Boston, from South Station to Reedville. It serves areas with more people of color and lower-income residents, passing through regions of Dorchester, Mattapan, and Hyde Park that have no other convenient rail lines. Its riders want to use it like the subway line it resembles, but the trains are only coming through every 45 minutes to an hour. And until recently, they weren't able to pay with a Charlie card or transfer to other MBTA train lines, so it was more expensive than the T and less convenient. That meant low ridership, which for quite a while led to more trains canceled along the Fairmount than any other in order to protect higher ridership suburban lines. That's been changing with pushes to increase service, But that definitely would not be the case if the route wasn't also home to a very engaged activist network. Rep Strauss compares the centrality and necessity of the Fairmount Line in Boston to Weston, an affluent town that's also home to a commuter rail station.
3: People who live in in, in a community that has those characteristics generally have uh, alternatives available to them uh, in terms of transportation or not even traveling just staying at home and and working from there. But other communities uh, don't have the same options available. So uh, if you then bring it to the specific issue of Fairmont, uh, then you view the maintenance of the line, the expansion of the line, the transferability of the fare card into the rest of the T system, uh, those kinds of issues that, that surround that. Uh, through a uh, broader lens of what is the transportation system intended to accomplish.
1: The Fairmount retained the highest percentage of its ridership during 2020 of any commuter rail line. And that was still only 39%.
0: Rep Strauss and Monica tibbetts compared the T's current metric of success, ridership, to a different metric, access. As the state plans for its transit future, Monica says, it can't overlook entrenched disparities in transportation. Studies have found black commuters in Boston face longer commutes than do white commuters. This is true even when accounting for what modes people are using.
4: The central vein that runs through all of this is really equity. And talking about the inequities in the Commonwealth and really starting to take steps to address this because they play through housing, economic development, transportation, plays through all of this. And so I think if we want to have more equitable communities, if we want to be more welcoming as a region, we need to start addressing the ugly history. We need to start addressing a lot of these transportation projects that gentrified neighborhoods, cut off neighborhoods. We need to reckon with that history and we need to do better. And we have to make Equity is central to the work we're doing as we do safety.
2: There are still big transportation questions up in the air that have nothing to do with COVID, technically. For one, the MBTA is driverless for the time being, after the tenure of the Fiscal and Management Control Board expired. What a new oversight body might look like is the subject of much debate. Boston politicians have been pushing for years to have a designated seat on the board. Monica is among those who think there should be a bigger presence from riders on any oversight panel. Then there are the American Rescue Plan Act funds for infrastructure, many of which are still unallocated. Do they go to T service, to road repairs, a combination, or something else entirely?
1: Because all of this leaves us in an odd spot. We know that long-term transportation planning is slow. Those new orange and red line trains we mentioned earlier, they were in the pipeline for years and are literally already off track. Rushing massive infrastructure changes based only on the current landscape would almost certainly lead to a misstep, Rep Strauss says. Uh,
3: we just have to be uh, a little cautious about coming to uh, hard and fast conclusions. Uh, we need to uh, be prepared uh, to... Uh, respond as we see changes and identify for major investments those things that keep our options open, so to speak. So uh, maintaining roads and bridges is important. The fixed assets of of a good condition, state of good repair uh, for our our public transit assets, that's critical.
2: So the transportation reboot, where are we? Right now, it has the feeling of when your computer restarts when you really need it to work, and then just hangs there installing updates as your precious minutes and hours tick away. Reading between the lines of what we heard this week, neither Rep. Strauss nor Monica Tibbetsnutt see quick action or easy solutions. The timeline for system upgrades is really long, while for traffic's return, the timeline is, well, now. We'll know more about the size and shape of that in September and October, when more workers return to the office more regularly and students return to campus. But the way it looks today, we won't be avoiding the pain of a traffic meltdown. That's it for this week's episode of Mass Reboot. Next time, we're taking a look at the reboot for Massachusetts restaurants, grappling with just how much of a thriving restaurant scene went under during COVID, and grabbing a cocktail and dinner to go while we still can. Our next episode, Food, arrives in two weeks. Mass Reboot is a production of the Mass Inc. polling group in association with Commonwealth Magazine. It's produced by Steve Cazella, Jennifer Smith, and me, Libby Gormley. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. To help us make more episodes, donate at patreon.com slash mass underscore reboot. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here July 21st.